everyone. Uh, I'm Henry, and welcome to episode six of series uh, Dream It, Build It by Seattle Vietnamese Professional SVP and Vietnam Tech Society VPS. SVP and VPS are two nonprofit organizations that focus on the growth of Vietnamese people in Seattle and in the tech industry. Dream It, Build It is a series where we invite high-profile and successful Vietnamese leaders to inspire Vietnamese students and professionals. We want to show you that everything is possible. You just have to dream it and go build it. Our guest speaker is Ling Dao Smoke. She is the Chief Operating Officer at Hackernoon. Hackernoon is built for technologists to read, write, and publish. Hackernoon is a community of 12,000 writers with 4 million monthly readers. And yesterday, Coil, the web monetization provider, led a 1 million investment in Hackernoon at an 11.5 million pre-money valuation. And it's some amazing company, and we are very lucky to have their COO talking with us today. So uh, good morning and welcome to the show, Ling. How are you doing? Thank you, Henry, for that glowing introduction. <laughs> I'm very flattered. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing great. It's uh, 10 a.m. here in the mountains, very sunny day. Um, I'm ready to work. Ready to work. All right. Perfect. <laughs> so... Uh, for this interview, uh, we're gonna like start out 30 minutes talking, and then I'm gonna set um, the floor for all the people on this call to have a, a question for you. So first, uh, yes, uh, first we're gonna uh, go through your background because I really want to show the people that they can relate to you, right? They, we are Vietnamese too. We went through the struggle and then we're going to be successful. And that, that's the message uh, that I want to show to everyone watching. And then going to go deep into Hacker Noon, like your role, what do you do? How do you turn uh, like traffic into revenue and running this like company? So first of all, like, can you tell us more about your background? Uh, how did, where did you grow up? And, and uh, like, why did you decide to like go study abroad? Yeah. Of course. So, hi everybody. Thank you for joining today, uh, as well as the people who will watch it later. Uh, I'm very flattered to be giving back a little bit to the Vietnamese community specifically. The past three, four years, I've been focused more on the tech industry in general. And like some part of it has got to do with Vietnamese tech, but uh, a small part. And I definitely want to improve the presence then, uh, elevate and amplify the voices of Vietnamese tech professionals uh, in the larger context of the tech industry for sure because we have some awesome people um, you know here so a little bit about myself uh, my name is Ling and I was born down up Ling and uh, my my uh, uh, maiden name and then my married name is Ling Dao Sok because my husband is David Sok um, was born raised in Hanoi a very normal yeah I'm not a rich kid <laughs> yeah uh, very normal life uh, my dad is a musician and my mom works for the uh, export and import department of a textile company yeah so up until i was 16 or 17 years old i wasn't even sure that i was gonna go um, abroad or study you know my most sure and safest route honestly would be to go to like foreign trade university or something like that in hanoi and I don't know, like have a degree in economics and maybe work for the government afterwards, like a very <laughs> standard linear trajectory of, of, of what a Hanoian girl, girl would mm -hmm. do. But I think it was really my mom who very valued um, and still values education that insisted I apply for this little program called uh, United World College. Mm. And it was like a scholarship program for, mm. at the time, for Vietnamese students every year. And now um, the number of scholarships ha have increased to, I think, mm -hmm. to like 15 range a year. Mm -hmm. So I can go back to that. But yeah, that was really a pivotal point uh, when I was learning about that program for really any kid in Vietnam mm -hmm. to learn more about the world and to kind of burst out that bu bubble and uh, go into the world uh, 
so I applied and mm -hmm. you know I was lucky enough to be selected uh, in the final round and then you know when the selection committee asked me like which school do you want to go to I just kind of for whatever reason said India like I didn't think much of it I thought it would be <laughs> a good uh, destiny and it was close enough so my parents wouldn't be too worried but yeah like I was just intrigued uh, by India so then I, I went to India uh, United World College Mahindra in India uh, or as we lovingly call it Muki I think there's one Muki today uh, in the audience and yeah that was the year when I was almost 17 that my life just literally changed course it like completely for the better I was very privileged to learn more about my 200 friends it's a very small school from I think 75 different countries and for the first time it's like my eyes were open to just like issues and global stuff and ideologies and values that are very kind of far, were far and seemed foreign to me at the time you know because in Vietnam we was taught and we were uh, conditioned with this specific set of values and beliefs and like now I, I went to this very global school and I was exposed mm -hmm. to like this whole new world right? mm -hmm. so that was Muki it was in 2007 when I was 17 um, I studied there for two years and I applied to Brown University early mm -hmm. the reason being I was really intrigued by the focus that progressive ideologies and their focus mm. on equality like you know equality for both men and women equality for like people of different colors like it's, it's one of the first universities in that corner of mm -hmm. the u.s to implement those progressive ideals mm. so i was really intrigued by that so i applied early and i got in and thanks to uwc scholarships mm -hmm. um it kind of went uh, bleed over into the four years at brown too so i got a little mm. bit of scholarship from uwc and then the rest from brown so that was mm. also very lucky you can see like the consistent theme in my story really has got i think a lot to do with luck mm. like yeah. you know pe people forget that often that oh like why can they get to that? Like, did they just like was extremely, I don't know, like intelligent and like above mm -hmm. average or something? I don't know. Like, honestly, I don't know if my um, abilities and my intelligence and all of that are above average. Maybe it is. But mm -hmm. I think the most important factor is I was just at the right place at the right time. Exactly. A lot of the times and I was given opportunity and I capitalized on those opportunities you know, mm -hmm. along the way. So many people might have been given those opportunities just as I was, but maybe they didn't like get there in time, you mm -hmm. know? So, so I think there's, there's a lot of that, a lot of luck involved. I got into Brown and then I studied for four years there for uh, a degree in international development. Mm -hmm. So the focus is just discussing politics and sociologies and economics, a combination of those three, um, as well as like learning on the ground and applying those theories into a practical project that mm -hmm. you could present you know, at the end of the four years. So then um, my focus in my junior year when I chose was education, because I feel incredibly grateful you know for the opportunities mm -hmm. that i received throughout my two years at uwc and then at then my three years at brown that i think i should study more and uh highlight more the importance of education mm -hmm. so yeah i went back to vietnam in my junior year i believe to found a little project called the creative kid project or ckp mm -hmm. i think they've since changed the name to just ckp to um, broaden the scope of mm -hmm. of the program to not just a little one-off project but more to foster creativity and knowledge in mm -hmm. all students so at the time it was just a 30 student project for middle school students in Hanoi that will have them go through seven days of intense training and mm -hmm. fun activities as well mm -hmm. as talks and all, all fun stuff and I don't I, I believe that at the time there wasn't any anything like that that focused mm -hmm. on middle school students why middle school students? I was thinking to myself, I think once you got to high school, you basically have to be pushed to exactly. choose a direction, right? Like you yeah. have to like 
care about university. You have to choose your concentration, your uh, major, like already have some kind of a uh, direction in life. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, like why, like what university would you choose? <laughs> or if you, you know, happen to not choose university, then you have to do something with your life. Whereas in the middle school, you still uh, open-minded enough to be open to so many re- uh, possibilities. Mm-hmm. And you are old enough to discuss things you know, in depth. So I think that was why we chose that, that age group. And it has proven to be incredibly helpful for not just the students themselves, but for all of the volunteers that are involved. Mm-hmm. I founded it in 2012 and it's been eight years and it's still running. Still running. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's still running every single year. And they are thinking of expanding it to maybe more cities and you know, like all over Vietnam or maybe hopefully at some point in Asia or something like that. So I feel very, very good that mm. I uh, decided, you know, in that year 2012 to go back to Vietnam and, and, and did that. Mm. So then I think because of my focus and my passion for education uh, in school, that when I graduated from university, I got uh, mostly jobs in education, either mm. like research on education, or then I got a teaching job at Everest Education, which is an innovative mm. company that focusing on uh, technology and the intersection between technology mm. and classroom activities. So I had that. And then because of that job, I also got into Minerva, which is mm-hmm. a San Francisco-based company with very small batches of students every year sending to seven, eight different locations in the world. Mm-hmm. And they study 100% online. They study uh, via this thing called the Active Learning Forum. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, like before, when I was still working at Minerva, trying to explain to especially like like strict Asian parents about mm-hmm. this idea, mm-hmm. like a lot of them you know, turn skeptical about like how would an mm-hmm. online global school works, right? But then exactly. like the coronavirus <laughs> pandemic happens and everybody like goes to Zoom <laughs> and all of a sudden hill the advance of technology and how it's so important and very mm-hmm. possible in being an important part of education. So I thought it was very interesting. Like if I were still working for Minova, Today, I would have so much to say exactly. to these strict parents, and they probably would be a lot more um, receptive to this idea, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, after Minerva, uh, which was why I met David, my now husband, mm-hmm. it was one of my business trips uh, in San Francisco, and then I just met him randomly on the street. Um, and he, at the time, was developing kind of um, a company that was gonna publish a ton of content Mm. so he actually started with like 16 different publications um ranging from like fitness to technology to uh poetry and all kinds of things but the one publication that kind of emerged out of it all was Hakanoon and it was mm-hmm. very niche community that focused on the voice of technology the software developers mm-hmm. crypto enthusiasts startup founders um those kind of people Mm-hmm. And yeah, we found a niche and I first joined just as David did part-time. So mm-hmm. everyone who has ever been involved in Hackernoon has been part-time to begin. So I joined part-time. I tried to come up with a revenue model for mm-hmm. the uh, Hackernoon audience that is not too intrusive to mm-hmm. the reading experience. Then I became the COO and now here we are. <laughs> and now here we are. So. What, what a journey that, that you've been through. Man, that's amazing. Oh, that's that's uh, that's covered a lot of my questions. So <laughs> you you told me to like say about my background. Exactly. Just told you like how I got here. <laughs> yeah, that's that's perfect. That's perfect. All right. So let's let's jump right in in the, into Hackernoon. So you are the chief operating officer of Hackernoon. Like, what yeah. exactly is your responsibility? Yeah. So I wear many hats. We have a very small team. Our ratio to of team to writers is mm-hmm. one to fourteen twenty eight. So we have one staff member to every fifteen hundred uh, writers. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine the amount of work and mm-hmm. the kinds of all kind of various different responsibilities that each member um, has to do mm-hmm. on a day daily basis. I do anything from writing to our community 
to meeting with sponsors, devising strategy for our next year mm -hmm. to talking to our employees, you know, checking in how mm -hmm. they are doing to hiring new people and firing people, mm. hiring people, not fun. Not fun. <laughs> I tell you, <laughs> not fun. It's, it's one of my least favorite part of the job, but mm -hmm. as a CEO, you have to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I pretty much do things to keep the light on um, at our company. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. So, Hackernoon, you guys produce a lot of content, like article from many, from 12,000 writers. So you have a lot of traffic. So how do you turn those traffic into revenue? Yeah, let me talk about the traffic part first, because I think it's important to understand um, the business model of mm -hmm. this company. So if you think about traditional media, right, we have things like the New York Times, Washington Post, mm -hmm. Wall Street Journal, that kind of things where there's a very rigorous multi-layer process for a piece to get to the front page or to get published at all. So that's mm -hmm. traditional media, that's journalism for the most part. Like there's like opinion pieces that you can um, you can submit to the publication and get that published. But for the most part, it's very heavy process from the idea when it mm -hmm. like first comes to your head to when it gets to the people. So that's traditional media. Now we're in the age of social media, right? Mm -hmm. We have kind of armchair economists and armchair experts all over the place posting their opinions on statuses, on, on notes, um, doing little republishing of their blogs on mm -hmm. Twitter, on Facebook, and, you know, GitHub all over the place. Mm -hmm. And that's totally like a wild west right there. Right? Mm -hmm, like yeah. anyone can do anything on <laughs> social media. And I mean, lately, people have been really questioning the role of social media in controlling the narratives and controlling the content mm -hmm. of the web, right? How... Like, do they bear any responsibility? Like, do they control what people get to say or don't get to say? Mm -hmm. uh, things like that. So Twitter, for example, has uh, placed this fact check functionality into the tweets. And like mm -hmm. very recently, it fact checked the president of the United <laughs> States himself, right? So that's uh, a whole different world. So I think to think about Hacker Noon, effectively, you think about these two worlds and basically mm -hmm. we exist somewhere in the overlap. Mm. space between these two so we're not exactly a traditional journalism where the process is so heavy that it takes months even for a piece to get out mm. uh, the average number of days for a piece to get out on Hackernoon from the contributors is about three days so mm. from the moment that you write the piece to when you submit the piece you can get published maybe even on the same day to mm. um you know, a couple of days because you have problem with grammars or like the structure of the piece is not sound enough, for example. So yeah, we're not traditional media, but we're also not social media where there's literally no filter for what mm. you can say, you know, to your audience. There is always going to be a human mm -hmm. who will check your story. We call it the second human rule. Mm. Um, wherein an editor and we have four editors at Hackernoon and now out of a team of um, 11 people, mm -hmm. right? So four editors. So it's, it's a big part of our company who will always check in with the piece and give it 10 minutes of intense focused editorial uh, uh, mm -hmm. time. So it could be like, just check if your grammar is good, kind of tying it in with a bigger picture uh, with themes of what's going on on that day putting a tax at the end of your story. So a tag mm. is how a website can curate and distribute the stories to even more websites. Mm. So very good practice for search engine optimization or SEO. Mm. So if you like put, let's say yesterday I wrote a piece on my advice, my forwards are less advice for young professionals. You know, it's, it's called go, go for it anyway. Mm. I put like a go for it anyway tag career advice tag, startup advice tag, all of those tags. Now then when it, it starts to index on different sites um, mm -hmm. around the net, people will be able to find it easier. So then that's also a job of an uh, editor, which is to make sure to maximize the distributing potential of that story. So yeah, so, so that is in a nutshell how I can explain why we get the traffic, right? Because we're mm -hmm. not exactly traditional media, we're not exactly social media, we're trying to amplify the voice of contributors 
And in theory, anyone, literally mm-hmm. anyone can submit a piece on Hacker Noon. You know, you don't have to pay to submit mm-hmm. a piece to Hacker Noon. You don't have to go through extremely lengthy, rigorous process mm-hmm. to be able to publish on Hacker Noon. But also there is some weight to your story because it has been gone through an editorial process. Uh, it's been deemed good enough by mm-hmm. an editor to show to our formulaian monthly readers. Yeah, like if you have more question on that, then I can um, expand more. But I think your original question was, so how do I capitalize exactly. on my <laughs> revenue, right? So that's another thing with media is, it's the chicken and egg and problem wherein if you don't optimize for traffic, then you can't really monetize. But mm-hmm. if you monetize too early, then you will cannibalize your traffic. Mm. because you put so many barriers to the reading experience. So for example, mm. if you go through any traditional media site these days, chances are you're going to be bombarded with exactly. like pop-up and <laughs> have you signed up to this newsletter? <laughs> Did you pay us the $1 or the $5 uh-huh. we ask? And right. like all of those things, right? Like it, it's just incredibly painful to be able to access content nowadays. Why? Because re- they really need to get money out of exactly. some of these content, yep. right? Either via an ad or a subscription, a paywall model. So when we try to think about how we should capitalize this traffic, we were trying so hard to be cognizant of not cannibalizing the traffic and not turning mm-hmm. readers away because we put an ad on the story or because we make it so hard for readers to get the story by charging for the story. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to do, do either of that. And we vow to never put a paywall on mm-hmm. Hacker Noon. So we will not charge a reader whatsoever to read a piece on Hacker Noon. So a Hacker Noon story will always be free. But what we do and we are able to do is mm-hmm. to put a native ad that is basically part of the site as opposed mm-hmm. to a Google AdSense that just like pops up and like it's just very annoying at you on the sidebars and on the bottom and like as a pop so that's what Google AdSense does and what it does is it also targets you personally right mm-hmm. uh, if you have ever clicked on anything that's of interest right. to you like all of a sudden the next day <laughs> you saw it all over Instagram and Facebook and like everywhere so, so we don't want to do ads that personally attacks or targets you as a person what we do want to do is to have an ad that is relevant to the content that you're reading. Mm. If you go to any story with a tag, let's say uh, software development, we have mm-hmm. a company called Sentry that does really good systematic testing for software development companies. We put an ad for Sentry on the tag page as well as on the stories, the bottom with that mm-hmm. tag. So that's at by content relevancy, not by you as an individual person. I don't care who you are, how old you are, mm-hmm. if you're male or female, the geography, I don't, you know, none mm-hmm. of those were taken into account. But right. what were taken into account is that, well, you are on this page, you're reading the content specific mm-hmm. to this niche. I want to show you this ad. So that's one way we capitalize. And the other way is this thing across the top of the Hackanoon page it's called the yellow banner ad today it's this dot tech domain guy and it's because it's very native to hacker noon itself it's never going to be blocked by app blocker you know mm. like a lot of hackers use blockers because they are annoyed with google adsense and mm-hmm. uh, native uh, not native sorry uh geo targeting ads so yep. they would like use all kinds of blog and it's like an, another industry in and of itself right it's very fostering industry of ad yep. blocking but our native ad is not blocked and it's it's very non-intrusive really like if you want to read a story on Hacker Noon, what you see 90% of the screen is just text there's mm. no distraction whatsoever there's no sidebar the text overbleed and the image just kind of cross the board so the main focus and and we talk about this with the product team literally every day how do we make sure that the reading experience is the cleanest and serves the readers the most. So there's no distraction when they come to read because that's their sole purpose when they come to their site really is to gain knowledge and to Mm -hmm. gain access to the stories. So without paywall, without that, we need to be able to have an ad that is just the minimalistic, the most Mm -hmm. minimalistic that we can make so that they can focus on what truly matters which is the content uh, on the screen now it this is not perfect yet the revenue 
is still not enough for us to achieve profitability. Mm. So on the day to day, we still spend more than we mm. gain money. But I think enough people see the value in a clean reading destination that gives access to readers without any paywall, without any pop-up ads, anything like that. And with the kind of traffic that we have, that I think down the road, people would, we would get either to profitability or we will get enough investment from a bigger company to be able to make this sustainable for, for the team. I see. So. Uh, that's a great answer. <laughs> Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, You're welcome. Yep. So I also want to learn more about your recent experience uh, raising money for Hackernoon. Just like I introduced earlier, you got a, a million dollars from a coin. So can you like tell us uh, more about that? Yeah, sure. So in order to tell the story, it actually dates back to okay. when I founded uh, the Creative Pitch Project at CKP. Really? Now, yeah. All the way back. So, <laughs> all the way back. Now, this is not the first time we raised money. The first time we raised money was from equity crowdfunding. Mm-hmm. So the concept of equity crowdfunding is before the Jobs Act of 2015, only accredited investors can invest in a private American company. Mm. So if you don't have a net worth of, I think, minimum a million dollars or something, you can't Mm -hmm. invest in a private company. But after Jobs Act of 2015, um, the federal government allowed anyone like you or me to be Mm -hmm. able to invest a minimum of $100 in Mm. any private company as long as they go through an equity crowdfunding, some kind of a platform that allows that to happen. So we chose Start Engine and we were able to raise the maximum amount allowed for crowdfunding Mm -hmm. round regulation crowdfunding for Mm -hmm. a company like ours of $1.07 million. Mm-hmm. So that was back in 2000, end of 2018 and beginning of 2019. And this is our second round of $1 million from one company, Coil, and putting the post-money valuation of the company at $12.5 million. Mm-hmm. So that's the landscape of this race. Now, so in order to tell the story, back in 2012, when I founded CKP, I actually founded with a fellow Brown student. His mm-hmm. name is Evan Schwartz. And he was gonna go to Vietnam that summer of 2012 and it was just like asking uh, for any Vietnamese person you know give him recommendations on places to Mm. go and where to stay that kind of thing Um, but then he also said I'm very interested in education and that's why I went to Vietnam I want to learn more about the education system in Vietnam I'm like oh my god that's why that's what I'm doing too (laughs) like what why don't we meet you know and talk more on this and then after a couple of meetings we came up with the idea for CKP and we went back to Vietnam that summer recruited a couple more more founders and volunteers or we call them facilitators Mm -hmm. so yes or FATSEs they're like I have a place in my heart for FATSEs they're awesome people but anyway we did that with Evan and yeah, that was it. Like, it was a very fun summer. Didn't know it's going to turn out uh, or it's gonna, it was going to be any annual thing in the first place. But I loved it. And people, you know, the facilitators loved it. And they went on to do 2013, 2014, like all the way up to 2019 was the last one. And now they're preparing for the next year too, which is awesome. Now, fast forward from that story to 2018 when we were trying to crowdfund i was struggling with the idea like how can we make hackanoon sustainable Mm. how can we because at the time we were heavily reliant on another company's software medium.com we have to um and and again it's like a lengthy story but in order to understand the story you also have to understand medium the medium at first it was just kind of like hackanoon they like open for everyone and you know, no, no one has to pay anything in order to read any content, all fine and good. And we were building our software on medium.com, building our community on medium.com until about like September of 2018, where they were just all of a sudden decide that they need to put paywall on most of their stories and you can't run an ad, even if the ad is minimal and non-intrusive mm-hmm. on anything that's hosted on medium.com. Mm-hmm. And now, all of our stories are still on hackernoon.com, but the back end behind those stories at the time was still medium. Mm. So we had to break up with them because we don't want to put paywall on mm-hmm. anything. And 
you know, on top of that, they insultingly offered a very low number to acquire the company. Like, mm. you can't even believe how low it is. <laughs> so we like rejected that offer, obviously. And we like, okay, in order to continue as Hakanoon as a brand, we have mm -hmm. to move on, mm -hmm. which was why we have to raise the crowdfunding back in 2018. So then I was thinking, okay, I'm raising money. We published three niches of content, software development, startups, and cryptocurrency slash blockchain. And Evan, my friend back in 2012, mm -hmm. who founded CKP with me, I know that he was working for Ripple, which is the third largest cryptocurrency mm -hmm. uh, after Bitcoin and Ethereum. So I was thinking of him. I'm like, maybe, you know, this could turn out. Messaged him introduced me to his marketing team at the time, but that did not turn out. They weren't interested in like a further partnership. However, at the end of our crowdfunding that year, so it's 2019 now in March, the ex-CTO, his name is Stefan Thomas, learned about our crowdfunding effort. I could only imagine probably via like a Slack channel from mm -hmm. Evan or maybe some of his colleagues yeah. or something. Like for some reason, the name mm -hmm. Hackernoon has circulated. Right. within the Ripple company, okay? I don't know if it's directly from Evan, but that's the story I want to tell. <laughs> <laughs> and Steph, Stefan was like, wow, they almost reached their maximum of 1.07 million. It's like a, like a little bit over a million now. I'm going to close this, this round and I'm going to finish the rest so that they uh, fully subscribed for that round. So that was Stefan. Mm -hmm. Now, Stefan, about only three months earlier than that, now this was March of 2019, I think back in December of 2018, he had left Ripple as the mm -hmm. uh, chief technology officer to found this company called Coil. Mm. Coil is a web monetization solution that their mission is to allow websites and content creators around the world to be mm -hmm. able to get streamed micropayments to get streamed mm. money from from readers from interested mm -hmm. readers directly to the uh, digital wallet so the web monetization idea is extremely like just relevant to the time because mm -hmm. cryptocurrency is something that you know was on the rise at the time people were like trying to understand a, li a little bit more banking was just struggling with micropayments because imagine if you're like trying to stream something like $1 from me to you, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> the bank charges alone would be like 30 cents and 2.9% of that $1 in the first place. So by the time mm -hmm. that, you know, money you've got from me to you, it will be like almost next to nothing. Whereas right. with, with cryptocurrency, with blockchain, the premise is there's just no middleman, right? Mm -hmm. Like the money can seamlessly automatically go from one person to another without going to anyone else. So the, the yeah. idea of micropayment, which is prime to, to mature during that time. So then now back to Evan, Evan and Stefan basically came up with this thing called the intellectual protocol that allow micropayment to happen seamlessly. And for you, for example, if you go on YouTube, um, something like that, and you really like that, that creator, depending on how long you spend watching that video, that's how much you stream the mm. micropayment to that creator directly. This is why, like, you know, if you look at the rise of like Patreon and um, all of this, you know, from the, from, from the pandemic, it makes a lot of sense for this industry to be just blooming with people wanting a solution to their creativity without going through the bank, without mm -hmm. going through traditional places that charge you a lot of money. So yeah, all like it's just all by chance that uh, you know I later on learned that Stefan was founding Coil and Coil was providing web monetization, and Evan was actually the co-author of mm -hmm. the paper upon which Coil was founded. Blah blah blah. And then uh, yeah, two years later. Now we're at a point where we want to take Hakanoon further to the next mm -hmm. step. And one of the things that we have been thinking about from day one is how mm -hmm. we, how do we reward writers? Because right? mm -hmm. as I mentioned earlier, we don't charge writers or readers or anyone um, to be on Hakanoon, but we also have not paid them, right? Mm -hmm. And like a lot of people have. Uh, asks us the questions of will you ever get to the point where we uh, you reward writers for what they do so i think 
partnering with Koi was a step in the very good direction where we can try to double our toes in that world to try to like uh, yeah basically think of it's viable um, to provide a web monetized uh, solution to writers being on Hackanoon. Now if you go on Hackanoon these days you go on any writer's profile page uh, you would see a little sentence that say people have spent X amount of time on Hackanoon. Now that right there is the money because mm -hmm. right? if you spend like one hour I think a uh, koi stream like 36 cents if you spend like two hours that's like 36 mm -hmm. times two so i personally have generated like a month of breeding time right so so the amount of money would be small to begin with like you know don't get me wrong this is not going to be like a financially sustainable way for writers to like you know quit their job and be on happy noon but it is a very i think important first step in in basically putting some kind of value not just distribution value on mm. people's time and and effort you know writing on hackanoon and i think the first thing we're going to do is for anyone that doesn't um, install this web monetization solution on their profile we're going to pull it all together in one big fund called the back to the internet back to the internet pool and this will be used for donation to charity because we're not in the business to capitalize on writers' earnings, you know, as part of our revenue. That's that's not what we want to do. But what we do want to encourage is even if the earning is small to begin with, you still can do something cool with the earning itself, such as to mm -hmm. to, to donate to to a charity that uh, better the internet. So, yeah, that's that's the nature of the relationship with Coil. And they have been awesome, like amazing people to work with. Um, and their chief growth officer, who uh, used to be the CFO at Imager, which is mm -hmm. this very large community competitor to um, a bunch of imaging uh, mm -hmm. solution, I think is the top 30 site in the world, will join uh, me and David uh, in the Hackanoon board. So mm. his expertise and his insight into growing community of millions of creators will really strengthen our position in, uh, mm. in this industry. They, they're happy to have Jonathan with us. Great. Man, that's a, that's a very, uh, that's a great answer. So uh, it covered a lot of questions too. So um, I guess uh, now we are uh, at the 44 minutes, 45 minutes into the show. Uh, I guess I will uh, let the audience to uh, to ask you question. Uh, anyone? So I saw already saw some questions from the people in here typing out. Um, actually, let's go with this question. Like, um, I, um, some someone uh, said that uh, how do you compete with other uh, like website like Medium like. Um, what is this like hacker news quora and twitter mm. so like, like like what is uh special about uh hacker news yeah so i think the umbrella philosophy we have with hacker noon is that we don't have to be a zero-sum game with all these awesome sites in the world mm. that uh trying to contribute and make just the internet more accessible and content on the internet more accessible it shouldn't be a zero-sum game um, like their gain is not our loss, I don't mm. think. Um, the more people want to publish on just the internet in general, the better it is for everyone involved. And in terms of uh, our unique value prop, right? Like our, our, our value proposition when it comes to Hakanoon compared to other sites, um, mm. I think we choose very niched. So we publish technologists. So these are some of the people that some of them might have like a blog, like yourself. I saw like you have like a, a personal blog, right? But a lot of them traditionally are not the strongest and loudest voice in blogging. Like uh, most of the time when it comes to telling a story, it's like the founder or like the marketing professionals of that company who would do the job. Whereas like the software developers, like the actual people who do the coding, um, who do the job of building the thing, don't get to tell the story from their perspective very often. And then another thing, which is our advantage, is we don't publish 
like newsy, like breaking, like mm-hmm. breaking news and like <laughs> headline grabbing stuff, um, which is very, very prevalent in the blockchain and cryptocurrency industry. It's mostly just, uh, just like clickbait. So we don't do that. Instead, fr- from the get-go, we do opinions and in-depth analysis mm-hmm. on, um, on the industry, which I right. think is also, yeah, like the opinions of the expert. Like if you think about it, most of the, the narratives on the world today are shaped either by uh, journalists, you know, people who are like uh, professional writers mm-hmm. um, or like the extremely influential, uh, influential people, mm-hmm. you know, influencers, uh, like the little, I don't know, like a very good, but not that famous or internet mm-hmm. famous software developer from whatever Amazon wouldn't have that same gravitas when it comes to, yeah. to, to telling this story. So I think it's a very unique thing that we trying to achieve in amplifying the voice of technologists and of professionals that otherwise won't be able to 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 do that on on uh, a lot of other platforms i see that's uh, that's great so for the uh, participant in this video call i have allowed you to unmute yourself so if you want to turn on your camera unmute yourself and ask uh, the question to link, uh, feel free. And then from, if there's none, then I'm just gonna keep uh, asking the question from uh, from the submitted uh, list of questions. So I see I the saw question. some in the chats as well. Exactly, yeah. There's a lot of questions submitted to you, so. Oh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> one of the questions that, uh, I, let, let us go with this one. Uh, where do you see Hacker Noon in uh, like five years from now? And uh, actually, uh, five years is uh, kind of far. So what about just like two years from now, like medium mm-hmm. and then long term? I think first and foremost, that the most ideal scenario for us right now is not to have to raise more money. Mm. Like it's, I know it's a little bit counterintuitive for some startups to think about that way, like just keep grabbing VC money and mm-hmm. like do all of these things to optimize and capitalize on growth and maybe like cash out, right? I think that's, a viable path for a lot of startups, but I don't think it's viable or it's, it's most ideal for us. Mm-hmm. Let, me, let me explain why. We have never got any VC money because once you got VC money, mm-hmm. a lot of the time they're gonna control the uh, decisions and the strategies that you make in your company. Right mm-hmm. now, David and I still own the by far the majority shares in this company. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, 75% and the 12%, which is the ownership of the crowdfunding also goes to David because most of the crowdfunder defer their voting rights to mm. the CEO as part of the crowdfunding. So we have like the destiny of this company is in our hand and it's really hard for us to give that up. We don't want to be a company that's like someone else's uh, mm. child. So getting VCs and raising a lot of money I don't think would be our next path. Not to say that we will like rule that out 100%, but very, very unlikely. The most best solution to not have to raise more money and or to get any VC money is to be a profitable enough business, which mm. is, you know, like oldest model of business is right. Like you have to be making enough money to cover your mm-hmm. expenses. Like that's just economic 101. And in order to do that, we have to better all aspects of the company from editorial to product to you know we are a software company now as well we built our own content management system like everything you see on Hackernoon is coded by our developers so we have to improve our product increase the rate of publishing and make sure to get enough sponsors for uh, our company that yeah we don't have to raise more money so i think mm. that would be the medium term hopefully we can achieve that by 2021 that would be great but i think the five years plan would be there's so many directions that we can mm-hmm. go as a software and a publication one way would be to license out our software so we have a very proprietary good system like good enough for thousands like twelve thousand uh, mm-hmm. tens of thousands of people to submit stories we get like anywhere from like 50 to 100 submissions per day and we only accept and the editorial team only accept about I want to say like 60, 50 to 60% of them. So the proprietary software 
is good. It's uh, it's able to withhold a lot of traffic, you know, and to make sure that a contributor can submit the stories and editor can review the story and can publish the story. So I think that kind of a platform maybe is also of desire to many niches. It doesn't have to be in the tech industry only. I think it could be across many different verticals like fitness or I don't know, like Mm -hmm. health rock, whatever. So that's one way. Another way I think we could go could be to go all in with the cryptocurrency blockchain world and tokenize the Mm. reading time of every Mm. single contributor and reader on Hackanoon. Now that's a very lofty and very kind of out there ambitious goal. And for that to happen, we probably have to raise like a lot of money. But I mean, at the end of it, we might be at the forefront of internet 3.0. Like we might be at the forefront of one of the first sites to be able to reward every single action of the reader and the writer on the site with a token. And I do think that cryptocurrency and blockchain will be the future of Mm. the internet. It it will be like the next internet, I think, which if we can get on that uh, early, that could be, that could be awesome. But I'm not sure. And then the third one, which is I think very likely and very, you often see that in media landscape, which, which is consolidation and acquisition. We, can totally be bought by another bigger company that's having more resources than we do. And yeah, maybe we go on and do something else. And that's the exit strategy that, you know, all the investors are asking you, what's your exit strategy? So (laughs) I know it's less exciting for me to like think about that right now, but Mm -hmm. it could also be a possibility. I think we're smart enough, me and David, that, that we can go on to the next stage of our career doing something else as well. Uh, but right now, like my hearts and, and my heart and mind is 100% completely mm. on Hackanoon. I see. Cool. So, so next question. Oh, actually, there's someone want to ask some question? You want to unmute yourself? Hello. Hi. Can you hear me? Hello. Yeah, yes. we can hear you. Hi, this is Max, and I'm currently in Toronto, Canada. Yeah, so I'm a friend of Henry, and thank you for inviting me here. And like, uh, I'm really... Uh, Although I haven't been to Hackernoon often, but I really like the idea that you're going forward with. And I'd like to touch more on uh, how you are planning to create more incentive for contributing writers to contribute to the platform. So besides Coral, do you think that you also think, you'll also think of like, let's say partnership programs so that you can provide maybe non-monetary incentives to mm. uh, contributing writer or maybe, you know, other form of things that can be valuable to them. Like say, you know, like, help them tap to a network or connect them mm. with like audiences or people within the industry, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's certainly on our mind. Th- thank you, Max, for asking the question. I've never been to Toronto. Is that cool? Yeah. <laughs> well, to, well, to be uh, fair, like the snow only stopped, like I say three weeks ago and, oh, wow. <laughs> and we've been having like hot days and then it rained and stormy and then like suddenly it's just like all sunny again like right now i don't know like what's gonna be like within two hours i'm scared yeah the next step but like more and more when i look at the u.s these days i'm like maybe canada is not out of the question after all anyway that's that's off tangent yeah to answer your question a lot of the incentive in the early days and to this day for happening contributors is distribution so because we have grown a large enough audience and we haven't charged anyone ever for anything to read on Hackanoon. That's why that explains the traffic that we have uh, early days as well as now. That we, in order to, 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 to do better, to do better by the writers, we just have to be better at distributing their content. So that's, that was our thesis, is just increase the rate mm-hmm. of publishing, make sure that uh, we promote the stories everywhere, uh, social media, we, we index the stories well, we provide mm. good editorial feedback to the story. Then whatever they want to get out of publishing on Hackanoon, they can achieve. So if you go on the, the profile, one of the things that we highlight the most is their call to action. So might just say like book a meeting with me, but you can like direct resources to like a cause you care about um, or like hire me. You know, like if you're like a professional looking to to get your resume out there, um, think of it as like the LinkedIn publishing blog post as well. Like, you know, they 
in recent years have focused a lot on growing that professional network of people who are looking for jobs or who are transitioning from one career to another or who are hiring to also basically put contacts to their resume and to their uh, project wherever they're working on. So that was our thesis is let's be better at distribution. Now, in terms of other incentive for writers, we do have a small group, uh, a couple of small groups. So on Facebook, we have a small group. On Discourse, we also have Telegram, LinkedIn, all of these uh, across different networks uh, for people to talk to each other. You're right that like in order for Hakanoon to be more sticky as like closer to like a traditional social network, we have to make it like there's a reason for them to come back, maybe making the software uh, more of a collaboration tool. So instead of like just doing like a little commenting after at the end of the story, you might want to make the commenters or the readers more of a collaborator with the story. Mm -hmm. So like put, you know, annotations to like uh, different concepts or like do a very in-depth response to the stories and, Maybe we can allow uh, several people to co-author a piece so that it just has more depth and gravitas to the piece itself. So I think like going into that direction of like community editors and making the experience on Hakanun more collaborative would be good. It's really hard actually to build something that's also a commenting and collaborating system as well as just like a regular publishing thing because you need to understand the users. You need to know what is their reason in the first place to come to this platform and what make them stay. So we're still learning that every single day, but right now our thesis is still making the distribution better and build a better platform so that they uh, have a more reason to stay. Uh, cool. cool. But can I, can I add a bit more to that? Mm-hmm. Like, can I have a follow-up question? Sure, go ahead. Yeah. Because like the reason I ask about like a kind of incentive or partnership program is that something I noticed with LinkedIn is that like a few of my friends are doing is that they like apparently, I don't know how official their partnership with LinkedIn is, but like they are technically like a LinkedIn campus editor. So so in a way, like they write stuff, they post on LinkedIn and, you know, like they, they get to be associated with the brand and, you know, have mm. like a, some, some kind of like certificate or recognition. So, yeah. So I was wondering if eventually Hackernoon would be it would reach a place where people can probably like put it on the LinkedIn like I'm an I'm a I'm a contributor to Hackernoon and you know like that increased the yeah. with them so like if the you go LinkedIn to community oh that exists already yeah if you go to Hackernoon right now it says like we have like hundreds of people working for us which is not true uh, <laughs> we only have seven full time people four part time people so like a lot of our contributors and holders already talk about like their involvement with Hakanoon. I think what you're getting at also is like a gamification system wherein people, so right now people are relying on like the street cred, right? Of like being on Hakanoon. That's so cool. I'm like getting all of this front page traffic and like I'm screenshotting my stats page or like um, saying, wow, my company gets on Hakanoon. But like, how do you also gamify the whole software so that people get batch of like, oh, you did, x thousands of minutes today or like you know some miles today you march a lot today you do this today like getting them the next level require a lot of gamification going on i don't think we have like you look at our budget right now like it's like literally less than two percent of our budget is spent on marketing just because we have enough like we have twelve thousand contributing writers and four million readers we have enough people that know about the brand it's still very niche it's not like I don't know, Reddit or whatever, but it's, it's, it's niche, but it's big enough mm-hmm. that we haven't had to spend too much on marketing to advertise the value of publishing on Hackanoon. I think once we able to bring people over to our platform, we have to make them stay and we mm-hmm. have to make them have like just more reasons to keep contributing. I see. You, do you also think that there'll be one day when Hackanoon would also be available in other languages? So that every article would be, yeah. let's say, like Vietnamese, because like I know a site like Vietcetera, like they do, like they do decently in pushing out like you know Vietnamese and English content side by side. So I think that's something going yeah. forward would be like amazing. I know. Yes. Yeah. That's. I actually had a talk with uh, my husband David just before this call about localization of the app. 
So traffic is 75% desktop and 25% mobile. So we like haven't even like gone into that, that development space of optimizing for mobile traffic yet. And once you have an app, then it'll be a little bit easier to localize that app into different languages. And we don't necessarily have to go that route like make you know the site into like different apps and like different localization versions of of Hacker Noon itself. We do have, I think anecdotally, we do have like some pieces in like Chinese and Russian or like even Vietnamese, but it's like a very, very small portion of the overall Hacker Noon library. In order to do translation well, I mean, that's, that's a beast in and of itself. Like if you have ever tasted anything on Google Translate, you're like, you, end, you would understand this problem. <laughs> like if you right. rely on just technology and AI, it probably will not be enough. Like mm-hmm. you need safeguard people who check the quality of the content itself. Like you, you probably would have to do the, the YouTube model of relying on crowdsourced labor. You know, like uh, if you want to translate this and do this, like you're like an expert in that, do this. I think that's the model that a lot of uh, good tech companies do is just to rely on the power, the power of the crowd mm-hmm. um, of, of a large quantity of people. So I think if we ever get to the point where there's enough interest Right now, it's like 33% U.S. traffic and then 66% the rest of the world. And a lot of those countries are like English speaking as well. I do have some Vietnamese readers, but it's it's very small. It's maybe like less than like 2% or something. So if we ever get to a point where it's global, global enough that we like really, really need at least like three or four other major languages, I think we can think seriously about a developing app and technologies or crowdsourcing strategies to to make this more friendly international all right are you happy with uh, the answer max mm, <laughs> I got a clap. Yeah. yeah thank you do you have to run to another meeting or do you have time for one more question one last question no, no. okay i'm good all right cool the next uh, person that want to ask your question is uh, anh, uh somehow uh do you want to uh, uh, yeah. uh hi Lee. thank you for your hi. very insightful sharing I have one question about being persistent. Uh, I think to mm. get to where you are today, you have to overcome a lot of challenges. And could mm. you share one of the biggest challenges you have overcome recently? Mm. Because I think that could inspire many people to overcome their own challenges also. Mm. Feel like an interview yeah. question that you have to drop into. Yeah, tell me about that time where like, it proves like, all the things that I want to hire about Right. <laughs> I think being a Vietnamese American, I'm not Vietnamese American yet, to Vietnamese female person in technology, like I have all kinds of barriers uh, stacked against me. Uh, but I think I, like on a day-to-day basis, I don't really have to think about that a lot because I was just, you know, behind the screen doing what I do, running the company. But occasionally, um, things like sexism and racism and stuff like that would come up uh, within like the very subtle way people writing emails or, you know, addressing me as sir, because like they just assume that someone of this position would probably be a sir. Or like whenever they reply all to me and my husband, but like only addressing David first and not me. So there's like subtle ways in which I, I still can see there's a long way to go for the tech industry in particular, but also just, I don't know, the world, the US, to like catch up with like the ideals of what people want. Like really at the end of the day, everyone just wants to be treated as a human. And, you know, not because of anything that are particular about them, like the color of their skin, you know, the gender, all of that. The the struggle for me is not really unique to a lot of I guess minorities in the U.S. Right, like we have to try. I was telling Henry earlier in the call, we had to try like two or three times as hard to be gaining the same amount of respect, you know, in any industry, in the tech in general. And it was just, it's just hard. Like it's 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 not fair. It's something that's changing every single day. Um, I think we still have a long way to go to to get to a point where it doesn't matter that you're Vietnamese on a green card, you capable and have enough talent to be part of this company like I have this friend who 
like extremely smart. She's graduated from college, but like already got a great job uh, in New York. And she's like worrying about the status of her, her visa. Like, uh, the, you know, she might as well not get the job, not because she's not capable, but because the government might do something to screw up the, uh, the status of green card um, permanent resident applications based on work because the OPT expired. So I think, yeah, like a struggle of a minority immigrant in the U.S., I think would be would require me to 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 just sometimes like look back and be like, wow, look how far I come, but look how far I, I still have to go. And I really wish that the stories of people like me, you know, someone, I mean, as I told you guys earlier, like I grew up in a very normal family and none of my parents, like they don't even speak English to this day, like very little. Like every time they would like Google translate it and, and they would be like, wait, what are you talking about? So they don't even speak English, just very hardworking parents and caring parents. So the story, like if someone like me could make it in America, then I think other people could too. So, yeah. Thank you. So the, the essence is if you have a dream, go build it, right? Yay! <laughs> cool. So... Oh, well, we are 10 minutes uh, over time. So I guess uh, I'm going to conclude this uh, interview by saying uh, thank you to Ling. You are such an inspirational leader. You show us that if you have a dream, go build it and uh, just go and just do it. Man. Ling wrote a lot of uh, on Hack the Noon and you can go on Hack the Noon and search for Ling and you can read a lot of articles that she wrote. And she, she even wrote a, a very recent article about a student and her, her advice for the student and uh, like people in general. So check out Hack the Noon and thank you very much for uh, participating in this uh, interview with Link. We are very happy to uh, have you with us today. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Um, I'm very humbled and flattered by being here. and. Yeah, thank thank you for sending in the the, the questions, everyone. Oh. Hope I can maybe meet some of you in person. <laughs> right, anytime that you go to Seattle, you for sure we're gonna be there to uh, to like welcome you <laughs> or everywhere thank else. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, thank you. <laughs> All right, uh, thank you, everyone. Uh, I'll see you another time. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye. <laughs>